Oh. I don't know about you, Shadi, but like, <clears throat> I feel like all we talk about on this podcast is is Twitter and its ills. And I, I, uh, <laughs> I always find, especially lately, I'm finding that, that um, tweeting is, when I do it, it's taking the place of actual productive writing. <laughs> like after I do a whole sort of slew of tweets, I don't want to write anymore. And, and, and that's another reason for me to hate it. I, yeah. I'm, I'm fine. Do you find that? Do you, do you yeah, find so yourself what that? I, what I try to do is if I do a long tweet thread, I then, and it's like substantive and I put some time into it, I try to sometimes convert that into a longer article. So that's what I did with my ISIS piece from a couple of weeks ago. It started off as a thread that my editor at the Atlantic saw. And then he just, he, um, he emailed me. He's like, Shaddy, do you want to expand on the idea? Mm. Do you, do you ever do that with talks also? Like you take, you write up notes for talks and then you, you, you make an essay out of that? Or do you, do you make talks out of essays that you've already written? No, I make talks out of tweet threads. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I I I feel like I've been on on Twitter a lot this week, and I feel spent. You know, I was I was telling you I didn't want to even record tonight because yeah. I was going to write, but then I got on Twitter before our podcast in preparation for doing it, and then <laughs> you know, almost as I'm resigned not to write anything right now. So yeah, but your your voice needs to be on Twitter about all this stuff that's going on. Like people need to know what Demir is thinking. Wow, well, that's that's very kind, but. <laughs> No, because in some sense, you've helped shape the debate. So people don't know what to make of the whole Macron interview in The Economist. And here you are coming and you're saying, you know, you're telling people how to think about it, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm racked with all sorts of doubts about it because I, 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 you know, as I've gone through a lot of these uh, versions of this argument, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what they're thinking uh, in the Elysee. But anyway, let's not let's not sort of uh, let's maybe just take a jump back. I mean, I guess we'll 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 link to the uh, Macron interview in the uh, uh, the show notes, so people should go and read it. Um, but it's interesting, you know. It, I've been sort of following what Macron's been doing for the last uh, couple of months, but a little passively, and it sort of dawned on me recently. Uh, actually, a German friend uh, prompted me to go and, and and look more closely at what he has been saying. And I, I started following this before the Economist speech. He he gave a long interview, uh, sorry, a, a long speech to uh, his Foreign Service, which outlined most of the stuff which was in the um, uh, the Economist interview ahead of time. So this is it's not really new at all. It's all been there. It's just it sort of captured people's imagination all of a sudden right yeah. now. Um, and uh, I, I you know I think it's it's really significant um, in a lot of ways uh, that hasn't been grasped, but I'm not sure that I've grasped it correctly either yet. So I guess maybe that's why I'm trying it out on Twitter before I actually commit to something. Yeah, and I guess you're trying it out on this podcast too. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I don't know. So, I mean, you're not a Europeanist and I, I was encouraging you to, to read it. Um, did you, what did you, what, what struck you about it or if anything? And then, I mean, we can sort of. Yeah, so our, our listeners should know that I only read the Macron interview earlier today um, under duress from Demir because he's like, hey, we're recording tonight. And then, um, so I had to kind of read it. Um, and so it's interesting for, from my standpoint because I had just been following the commentary around it. And it's always intriguing when 
you haven't read something, but you only read the commentary around it. So you're already kind of forming an opinion based on what other people are saying. And I, I was somewhat surprised because what I read was quite different than what people, what other people said they were reading. Um, and so there was a kind of gap where people were freaking out. Oh, um, uh, Emmanuel Macron is, is saying these outrageous things or controversial things. And how could he possibly say this publicly about, um, NATO enlargement or Article 5 or Europe hunkering down all these things? But I read the transcript. And it didn't seem particularly provocative to me. It seemed, it seemed, it was more, it was more interesting than what you usually, um, hear from world leaders. And Macron, to his credit or perhaps to his discredit, um, tends to be more open about his views. And we know this about him. So it's not a surprise, but there was nothing that I read, um, in the transcript. And it's a long interview. It, you know, it took me like a half an hour to get through or something. There was nothing that really stood out to me as like, oh my God, he actually said that. But we should note, you know, um, and, uh, you know, one of our, one of our mutual, uh, Bosnian friends, uh, Riyada Akyol, uh, wrote a good piece about this and she kind of brought it to my attention that there was at least one, one little small part, um, that Macron sort of said in passing about Bosnia that was quite problematic. But if we're focusing on the on the EU EU stuff, the enlargement, what he says about Germany, what he says about Trump and NATO, there's nothing there that should really strike us. And I think the and Demir, I think you had a good point about this that it wasn't so much the substance of what he said; it's the fact that he said things that we all sort of know and talk about, and he kind of said it out loud and he put it out there. Um, in a way that's unusual for a world leader or for a president, right? Um, you know, you know. Uh, I mean, let's just uh, aside. I mean, I, I agree. Uh, I think everyone should read Riyadh's piece, and uh, we should link to it also in the uh, in the show notes because it, it talks about the question of Islamophobia. And uh, another person I've never actually met, but corresponded with, and we published him a few times in the magazine. Bruno Masias wrote an article. Making the case that that you know the the main underlying theme uh, that's tying together all of Macron's stuff is a special animus against Muslims, and we 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 can and maybe should talk about that a little later. But you know, what I think, what I'd like to hear from you, and maybe we can kick this around a little bit. Um, it's it's that here in this era of Trump, uh, Brexit. Trump, uh, Erdogan to a certain extent, uh, Orban, all these guys are um, lumped together to a certain extent as being uh, authoritarians, uh, as uh, well. Brexit's not a person, but 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 uh, <laughs> but that that all that there's a, a certain kind of uh, authoritarian impulse here that is expressing itself. Um, and that this is our enemy, however you put our, but us, us, the right-thinking liberals of the West, and this is what we ought to oppose. Uh, I know, you know, you you feel that like the us versus authoritarian frame is pretty good. What I what I really find the most interesting about Macron 
and his speech here is that it's actually very compatible with uh, Putin's version uh, vision of the world. He comes back to this question of sovereignty a lot. It's actually very compatible with Orbanism in a lot of ways. Now, again, it's not compatible if we define authoritarianism as clamping down on free media um, and, uh, uh, you know, basically squelching debate internally. That's not what Macron's about. Macron is actually, in fact, a liberal. But um, a lot of what he set out, I would argue, is it's, it's, it doesn't fall neatly into these two things. And for me, you know, the part that's always I found difficult to swallow when uh, people talk about Trumpism here um, and not Trumpism in the face of Trump and how he comes out, not the corruption, not the sleaziness, not the incompetence, uh, not the racism, uh, though, again, racism and anti-immigration gets into sort of hairy points. But it's, it's, it seems to elide uh, all sorts of things into this bucket of authoritarianism, i.e. not us, i.e. the other. Uh, and, you know, at least on foreign policy, uh, again, it's not my foreign policy, but I've been more than exposed to it and talked to plenty of people in Washington, D.C. way before Trump existed that were very much on board with a lot of the sort of foreign policy precepts that he is throwing out there. Uh, and it's been fascinating to see Macron do it right now because... I haven't yet seen this idea that Macron's been gotten to by the Russians, which has been the, the easy slur that everyone can just sort of throw at people who don't conform to this kind of, again, uh, well, I, I don't have really a word for it, but uh, liberal maximalism, mm. uh, call it like post-1989 post triumphalism. It's sort of what I was writing about in my review of, of Bob Kagan's book and, you know, that I thought that while that book was really interesting, the danger of what he was doing was setting up this category of authoritarians, anti-liberals that stand in opposition for all that is good and, 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 and pure. What's interesting about Macron to me, I think this is the crux of it, is that he presents all the sort of bigger picture trappings of what people find abhorrent. Uh, you know, in the European context, a stop on enlargement means basically a kind of immigration restrictionism. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, it, it maps very neatly on that. Uh, an obsession of sovereignty and an obsession with borders and citizenship, that is belonging to and therefore excluding others. Um, and yet he, he does it. First, he's not, uh, you know, at least as far as we know, uh, there's no sign that he's owned by the Russians on this, that he's, you know, has any financial debts to it. And most interestingly, and I think most confoundingly for that category, he does it in the service of liberalism. He says that if we're to preserve, you know, uh, what we've managed to build here in Europe, the liberal construct that we've managed to build, uh, you know, uh, since 1945, even more so since 1989, we have to stop expanding. We cannot afford to indulge in this fantasy of uh, the good spreading and the the universal... I, he talks about universals still being valid, but it's it's interesting. He, he couches it as universals only being valid within the context. That is, that is to say, we believe in the set of universals, but in the pragmatic world, we live in a fallen time and it ain't spreading and we can't be thinking we're spreading it. To think in messianic terms is 
death for Europe and death for all the values we 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 stand for. Um, and that's why, you know, this moment for me is so fascinating because um, while I was tweeting, I think the policy implications of a lot of what he's laid out, like rapprochement with Russia, like, uh, you know, even forestalling uh, uh, EU enlargement to a certain extent, especially in the Western Balkans, for very parochial, narrow terms, I think it can have really destructive uh, 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 outcomes. However, on the on the merits, I, I think he's not he's not crazy at all to say that 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 this uh, um, liberal messianism um, has caused a a a reaction among voters, and it needs to be, if not uh, certainly, he he would never say he, it needs to be rejected, but it needs to be curbed in order in order for it to even continue flourishing yeah so i think you're right um so i'm i'm more messianic myself that said if i was the french president i would i can see the logic of macron's approach he is in a difficult situation um he has pressures domestically he has pressures from his far right flank coming from Marine Le Pen and, and the national rally, previously the National Front. There is, there are, France does have issues with Muslim integration. Um, but I think also Macron is correctly looking at the U.S. role and he's saying, we can't count on the U.S. anymore as Europeans, as French. So we have to think beyond American protection or the American umbrella. And that restricts the kind of action that someone like Macron has. So we as Americans, in some sense, have the luxury to think in messianic terms. And I actually think that's that can be a good thing, at least from my perspective as someone who's more open to um, a proactive, pro-democracy approach in, in, in the world and in the Middle East and so on. But if you're coming at it from a French perspective, you're going to have a different set of priorities. And I think that's what Macron is, is basically conveying and what, he's, what he has been conveying for some time. But you get at this kind of paradox, which is this idea of closing down or hunkering down, in, but doing so in the name of liberalism. And that's not too dissimilar from what you hear from certain figures on the far right, not to say, obviously, Macron is not, he's a centrist, but it's interesting to see a kind of overlapping of language. And, you know, so I was, um, and maybe one day we'll talk about this on the podcast, but so I, when I was in Germany last month, and one of the things I was there doing was interviewing leaders of the AFD, the right-wing populist party in Germany. And it's interesting that they would couch their opposition to immigration and their opposition in some sense to Muslims or Islam more broadly in the language of defending liberalism, that for liberalism to survive, there has to be a kind of closing. So I see echoes of that. And honestly, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms until you mentioned it right now. So I'm hearing you talk right now and I'm like, I have heard this before. You know, as I tweeted, though, I mean, we we actually heard it before a while ago when the the Dutch, you know, firebrand politician Pim Fortown, the gay anti-Muslim or anti-immigration politician, that in many ways I think prefigures all of yeah. this, right? So yeah, we ha- we we have heard it before. 
I mean, you know what I was tweeting about the the thing. I remember even when Pim Fortown, I when he was killed, I wasn't aware of him before he was we was he was uh, killed. Um, I remember then reading up about him back in the day and saying, "God, that's that's kind of a, a like a scary paradox that he's actually pointing at, right? Because uh, that that it's it's quite frankly a lack of faith in assimilation that is driving that. Moreover." Uh, and I think this is somewhat difficult for Americans to understand, is that assimilation doesn't work as well in Europe as it does here. Now, again, that's a very complicated and hairy issue that that I'm not willing to, you know, uh, make categorical statements on because country by country, situation by situation, and it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. But at least as a political statement, it is scarily potent because it completely, to my ear, transcends the narrow parochial racist and sounds perfectly plausible. Again, you know, <clears throat> uh, when Macron did his blocking, um, like a week later, I was uh, in North Macedonia um, and actually we were meeting with government people and just sort of just as it had happened. And, you know, the, one of the questions that sort of came up at one of the dinners I was at was like, how could Macron do this? He's supposed to be one of the good guys, one of the liberals, you know? And and it it... It, it, uh, I spoke up and I said, well, you know, I mean, let's not forget that Macron is a liberal populist, or at least that's how, you know, it's a good way to think about him, is to remember that he's a populist, that he came in and overturned the entire existing political system in France, that he's a bit of a uh, megalomaniacal guy who named his party, the initials of his party after his own, on uh, Marche, Emmanuel Macron. Oh, you I hadn't thought it. You knew that, didn't you? Really? I mean, I know, I know that his movement was called Amar, yeah, but I didn't know. EM, EM. Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't mean. Wait, are you suggesting that? I, 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 I I'm pretty sure that's that's why. <laughs> but anyway, uh, whether that's true or not, maybe I'm just. Uh, but I, I, I've 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 heard that said. Uh, look, the the um, the fact of the matter is that you know people also lump populists in with authoritarians. I think that's that's a that's a a mistake. Uh, populism is both sort of, uh, you know, just a, a, a rhetorical move. But moreover, populists that come to power on the back of this rhetorical move come to power uh, because a certain set of, uh, you know, a certain kind of governance failure gives them an opening to basically point to this failure and come in. Now, this can be just normal democratic process, but it can also be, you know, with these sort of more demagogic uh, overtones. All I'm getting at is that you know, Macron here is is at least uh, rhetorically very much playing to populist script, which is to say that there is a a uh, a feeling that there has been an elite failure on the question of immigration and assimilation in Europe. That ties in beautifully also to this fact that, uh, and this is why I quibble with the idea that this is merely Islamophobia, because it ties to a a deeper feeling that enlargement in Europe has gone too fast and isn't working. Uh, again, you know, one can one can cite all sorts of statistics and one can cite to the fact that the European Union, despite all its headaches, still gets things done. But it's also the fact that there's been a, a, a kind of, that uh, these populists are tapping into a kind of feeling of, of elite failure that, you know, for all sorts of reasons. So, and so that's, 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 that to me is the, is the, the thing about Pim Fortown populism, Macron, and all of this. That's why I don't think it's 
smart even to think of it as merely uh, a far-right phenomenon. I think the fact that, that you know, you, you say that it's a far-right thing uh, ends up, it, it becomes far too easy to dismiss. And I think uh, we underestimate how uh, 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 alluring and plausible the argument is. Yeah, so... Um, Okay, <laughs> there's a lot there. So one thing is that we associate some of these ideas with the far right, but you're exactly you're exactly right that it goes well beyond that. And I think that's one of the reasons that you know, quote unquote, far right parties are doing relatively well in many European countries because what they're saying doesn't just appeal to a fringe; it has it has broad purchase throughout society. So when people talk about Muslims being difficult to integrate and how Islam isn't a natural fit for secular Western European societies, you can be a leftist or a centrist or a liberal or whatever. You hear that and you might not like the kind of rhetoric that the far right uses, but you sort of think to yourself, hmm, well, they might have a point there. And I mean, that that's so so in that sense, these ideas are not just far-right ideas. You're exactly right, and that's important to remember. There is an undercurrent of discomfort with Islam in Western European societies that is fairly broad-based. And you even see some of that on the European liberal left, where because they're secular, they see the growing share of the Muslim population as a potential threat to these secular ideals. And especially in France, that's something that you see across the board um, because there is a secu- there is a deep secular consensus and not just a secular consensus, but an aggressively secular consensus. Um, that said, I'm not sure I would call Mac- – I don't know how I feel about Macron being characterized as a populist in the sense that he is a creature. He is a creature of the establishment. He is like a meritocratic creation, if you will. Um, so it's not as if he like came out of nowhere. I mean, he was previously um, the minister of whatever they call whatever it in it France, yeah. whatever finance yeah. or economy or whatever, and uh, was someone who was close to the previous president um, Francois Hollande. Um, so and also like. Macron's got this like really, he's got like this irritatingly elite, cere- like he's one of those like really smart guys who's kind of megalomaniacal <laughs> like Obama, yeah. yeah? Like, he, he, okay, when I was reading the Economist interview, I'm yeah. like, he totally reminds me of Obama. Yeah, yeah. This sort of like sense of being in love with your own intellect mm. and that even though you're a president of a powerful country, you're almost taking a step back and playing the role of the political analyst who's like looking from afar and saying, here's what's happening in the world, let me tell you. Yeah, And yeah. I'm like, well, like you have some role in this. You're not just a kind of innocent bystander. It's obviously worse in the case of Obama because he was a leader of the most powerful country in the world. People can debate how powerful France is, but there is this sense of, this detached cerebral analysis that is, you know, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, um, well, just you know, on the on the question of Islam, the only thing I'd I'd, I'd add to this, and this is why, again, I I, I don't want to uh, uh, 
in any way say that there isn't a even prominent thread in this about that that deals exclusively with Islam. But on the broader European and integration question, again, it's it's a cliche, but just think of the Polish plumber and his role in in the British psyche. You know, this whole idea that that Wait, Demir, who's the Polish plumber? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, Wait, were, is that a thing? No, it's I a mean, thing. Yeah, the Brits were freaking out about Polish plumbers coming to take their jobs. And and uh, you know, white Christians, what do you want? Um yeah. and still there was this feeling that um these people, other other sort of stuff that 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 uh circulates through European uh and Euroskeptic uh um uh and it's not scurrilous because it's actually based in facts. There were, you know, uh Polish people coming and taking lower paying jobs in England. And the other one is is uh, you know, uh Romanian uh uh healthcare tourists coming from Eastern Europe and then, you know, freeloading on, on Western European welfare states, collecting checks and then going back. I mean, these, these are, these are sorts of things that knock around. Uh, you know, you don't even have to look for Islam. You look at the question of, uh, of the Roma, you know, the, uh, in the un-PC term, the gypsy populations in all of these, uh, Eastern European countries and what the Italians were doing with that you know, with the slums and clearing that has nothing to do with Islam. Yeah, but Islam captures the imagination in a way that all the other things you mentioned don't and can't. That's fine. All I'm saying is, is that, that I, I would subsume all of these as lesser included elements of, of a certain kind of Euroscepticism. Yeah. That, that's the important thing to me. I'm not saying that, again, uh, it's, I'm not denying that Islamophobia is there. I just think to, to, to categorize this as merely bigotry is wrong. It's that, it's that there's an opportunity here, a political opportunity for political entrepreneurs because, because the European project, uh, is perceived not by majorities. You look at Eurobarometer, it's not by majorities, but by, uh, enough of, a, of an electoral chunk to make hay of this. And again, if you're, if you're, uh, sort of balancing through this, uh, in, in interesting ways, you can, you can actually come to power and 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 actually control if not majorities but definitely a governing a governing a sizable governing uh um uh portion of the electorate yeah um and and that that to me is 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 what's interesting about this is that again coming back to to that what i was saying about the the and why people are um so repelled by trump so horrified by brexit so horrified and repelled by orban and uh threatened by uh, Erdoganism and Putinism. It's because all of these people are saying, you know, your maximalist dream of 1989 of the world transformed is hollow. Um, and it's interesting to see Macron, not because he's the first one to say it, not because he's the first person to leverage this trope of, I'm saying it because I love liberalism, that's why. But he's probably the most highly placed politician uh, to do the I am saving liberalism from its worst excesses thing. Um, and I don't see anyone with an answer mm. to that except people saying, uh, you know, oh, this is what the authoritarians say, you know, which is, which to me gets at the exa- exact same problem with this category of authoritarians as evil. I think, you know, I'm not saying that authoritarianism doesn't exist. I'm not saying it's not a problem. But this idea that authoritarianism represents anything more than a certain kind of, I think, institutional rot in weakly institutionalized countries, 
uh, I think it's it's a, it's a dumb category to to set us us up against. Yeah. And that's been my argument for for a while, which I think is to me now becoming clearer as I think through the Macron mm. statement. Yeah. So I do appreciate that Macron, um, you know, is the rare uh, leader of a of a Western country, as far as I can tell, that is actually willing to go out there and challenge the elite consensus of his predecessors and say, hey, we got a lot of things wrong and we're somewhat responsible or or perhaps more than somewhat responsible for the mess that um, that some of the world is in right now. And I think that there is something, I mean, I don't think that he's the most insightful person when he talks about this, but at least he's actually putting out some of these ideas and challenging challenging this this consensus which clearly hasn't worked out all that well um so i i guess yeah so i i i do like that and but then the, it gets back to this question of are you a are you a president or are you a political analyst so for example on the question just to go back something you said earlier i think struck me where um i get the sense that macron is almost saying about islam or muslims He's like, in an ideal world, we would be better at integrating Muslims in Western Europe and in France. And that would be what we would all hope for or what we would all want. But he's almost kind of taking a step back and saying, maybe we just have to face the facts that Europe doesn't have the resources to do integration well. And maybe that's just the way it is. And if you kind of take that premise that there's something inherent about you know, European nation states that makes it more difficult to integrate immigrants in general, but Muslim immigrants in particular, then you could kind of make a descriptive argument, which I think Macron is pretty much doing that, hey, I don't like it, but we're not good at this. There is an issue with Islam, you know, and hey, um, maybe for those reasons, we have to be clear eyed about the limitations of how much integration we can actually do. And from an American perspective, that's obviously problematic and it makes me uncomfortable. But I'm, because I'm American and because we as Americans have resources that Europeans don't and the French don't, that it's hard, there's, there's a real gap here. Um, and the things that we want Europeans to be better at, i.e. integrating Muslims, they they just don't, they're just not good at it. So, so Macron seems to be saying the world, the world is a certain way. We have to be humble about what our ambitions can be. And he's trying to almost hunker down. He's, he's having a more kind of defensive approach. He's seeing the world in this kind of, um, this somewhat cynical way or this somewhat less, less ambitious or idealistic way and saying, Let's protect the gains that we have. Yeah, no, look, uh, again, I just, uh, only thing I'd say, one, I don't think it's exclusively about Muslims. I'll get back mm. to that again. I think it's that the integration project hasn't worked. I think it's right that, that you know, what you said earlier, that uh, he's taking blame for, you know, the project such as it is, as it is not having really worked out. Um but again, I, it's not, it's not the resources or the ability. I don't think he's being that essentialist about it. I, I, that I'd also push back on. It's more like, uh, we've made a hash of like building the European Union such as it is. 
um, the way it's structured, adding more members at this point, um, it's dysfunctional as it is, adding more and more poor countries to the mix will make it more dysfunctional, not less, make it even more difficult to reform it, not less. Um, and as a result, we need to pause. I, 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 and look, again, it's not that he is a, I think he is a talented politician. It's, I don't think he's, and I, I, I'd quibble as well. The difference with Obama, I think you're right, is that Obama was more of an analyst. I, I do think Macron's actually much more instrumental about this. I don't think he gave this, this interview naively. He's been saying a lot of this stuff, and in fact, he's pursuing a lot of this stuff, and he's being strategic about trying to get his way in Europe. I'm not sure it's going to work. I don't think he's, he's, uh, um, he's gamed out all of this, or even if he has, I, I don't know if he thinks he's, it's going to work to the, to the full extent. But again, it's, the argument is, um, not that we can't integrate foreigners. It's that if there's any hope for this thing, whatever it is, this European Union, this sort of like union of European Western states, if there's anything for this liberal dream, if it's going to succeed, it needs to forswear expanding, both uh, indefinitely, both it's, you know, any sort of idea that the European Union is the liberal world order in sort of nascent form that has no hope but to spread to the rest of the world by the time they get the gospel of liberalism. Um, reject that. Um, and, you know, even if you believe it, it's just we're, it's not going to happen anytime soon because we've done a, a crap job up until what we have so far, that it's dysfunctional what we've built so far. So now is the time to stop pretending we can do both. Um, we can still believe in, you know, that any human being is has has rights and et cetera, et cetera, but we're not going to convert any more states to this. Um, you know. Um, it's interesting that you say convert. Yeah, well, I, I, I think, because I do think, I, I look, I, I personally think that, that liberalism is a messianic faith. We've talked about this yeah, here. Yeah, sure. And I, I and, and it is a question of conversion. I mean, I, I personally think that a lot of that is, is madness. You know, I, 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 to me, that's one of the things why, why um, I, I find myself, you know, I can't help but want the European Union to succeed um, because there are clear benefits for peace and prosperity, but I can't help but despair at its most ardent defenders, what they're doing to it. That's why I find myself actually very sympathetic to a lot of this stuff uh, because I don't believe, I'm not a believer, uh, but I still want the structure to succeed. That's that's where I find myself on this, you know? Yeah, so, so it's interesting that we're talking about an issue that, is is not really something I work on. So I'm kind of approaching this as an outsider who's kind of listening to other people's conversations. And as someone who doesn't have preformed strong opinions about EU enlargement, for example, I find myself somewhat amenable to different approaches. So when I when I hear Macron saying, hey, we got to take a pause and maybe hold off on this enlargement, I'm I'm not you know I'm open to the I'm open to what he's saying. I'm not going to just, you know, say out of hand that this is dangerous or bad or whatever. And um and that's also like it's something that can be positive about not not having strong opinions about something. Um cuz I'm used to like, I think so far in the podcast episodes that we've done, I've generally had pretty strongly formed opinions. Or, or at least I've like formed them right before we started recording, right? Right, <laughs> like on the fly. But you know what? I'm. I don't. I don't have. 
I just don't feel passionate about the EU. Well, so I don't know. Let me let me then just try and get you passionate uh, through through a side door, maybe. Um, you were saying uh, earlier on about um, you know, let me try and recreate it. Something along the lines is as an American and and sort of the universal appeal and universal ambitions for these values and ideas and how how as an American we have the luxury of doing that, whereas you know smaller countries maybe don't. Uh, do you think? Therefore, if you are so passionate about, you know, this sort of, you know, spreading this ideal, this gospel, if you will, um, uh, should the United States be committed to ensuring that the gospel succeeds in Europe? Should we be committing materiel? Should we be committing uh, military resources to defend it? Should we be guiding it and shaping it and, and doing everything we can for it to succeed? Is, is this, you know, again, to flip what I was saying or to flip what Macron's sort of implying, that this is the liberal world order, if not in chrysalis form, but in like pupa stage, right? And, and like we need, to, we need to nourish it. If it's going to work anywhere, it needs to work in Europe. And therefore, the United States, you know, uh, has a, a, a values-based interest in focusing at least a sizable chunk of its energies and making sure that it works. So look, if I was the American president, right, or advising one, president, let's say, President Hamid. Let's say, let's say President Hamid, or let's say, let's say, let's say, uh, National Security Advisor Hamid. Maybe that's more likely. Yeah, President Hamid, the first Muslim president. Oh, sorry, never mind. Yeah. The second Muslim president <laughs> after Obama. Right, right. I, I hope there are listeners will know that this is like a kind. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I don't. I'm I don't sure. literally mean that Obama was Muslim. Of course, of course. <laughs> So, so it, yeah, if, if I was in, you know, what some, you know, policy advising position where I could kind of like weigh in on this stuff, I would, I would, I would have a different, I would listen to, to something that Macron says and I would be pretty concerned because I don't like, I don't necessarily, necessarily love the idea of France going its own way. Mm-hmm. Um, I want Why? there to be top level coordination on fundamental concerns with with our European allies. Um that but that's my ideal and um I would hope that because essentially what Macron is responding to is a sense of American absence. So presumably if there was a sense of American presence, there could be a different kind of French or European approach. They need to see that there is a more involved American vision that include, includes Europe and has a vision for Europe, right? And I think that's important because for me, it's not so much liberalism. As we've talked about before, I'm not some like liberal messianist, but I am to some extent um, messianic in quotation marks when it comes to democracies working together because we as democracies do have shared values that go beyond um, liberalism or let's say, or go or perhaps don't go as far as liberalism, but still, but still there is a shared element there because democracies to me, even if they're not necessarily fully liberal democracies do have starting assumptions that non-democracies do not share, i.e. Russia, China, and so on. And that's why I like some of these ideas around like a D10 or a League of Democracies, and there's an interesting paper. I haven't I haven't finished it yet, but it's um, 
It's co-authored by Ash Jane and Matthew Kronig. And mm-hmm. one of the things that they propose is this, is this idea of it's not enough to have the UN or the G whatever. You need to also have a collection of democracies that coordinate very closely. And they suggest a D10, i.e. 10 democracies that coordinate very closely together and actually take the idea that their democracy is quite seriously, that that's not an accident, that to be to be powerful democracies also has some kind of implication for you for how you conduct foreign policy. And that how you how you organize yourself domestically matters for how you organize yourself in in um, in foreign policy terms. So I'm really interested in those kinds of ideas. So if there was a democratic um, if there was a democratic um, uh, president, democratic party president uh, in 2020 or beyond, I would like to see that that person kind of exploring how how to emphasize that. But you know, the problem with a lot of with some of my ideas, as we've talked about before, there is the ideal of what I would want when I think about when I think about like my my dream policy but i also then there's the reality of the limitations of what we're actually dealing with so i'm always in this perpetual tension of hey this is what i would ideally want but i also get that some other people um are are thinking about it in much more realistic sense of hey this isn't likely to happen so let's hunker down and deal with what we have and that's always going to be a kind of perpetual tension it's just interesting, you know. The uh, I, I, it's on my list to read that um, that paper you were you were uh, mm. saying. Um, I, I didn't know that that's the thrust of it because uh, I was just looking. It's up not the, the, It's one. It's one, one of the proposals. I'm just saying, there, you yeah. know, I, I, that that's that's one of those ideas with like a serious beard on it. It's been kicking around for like the <laughs> longest time. I, I I remember this because. I remember we published a piece, I was just looking it up, uh, in 2007 at the American Interest. It was called uh, Democracies of the World Unite. It was Evo mm. Dalder and James Lindsay. Uh, and it was at Brookings. It was at, at your own oh, institution. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, and even then, I recall, and I, I don't know the, 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 the extent of the beard, but even then I remember... Uh, our editor is saying like, yeah, this ain't new either. You know, like it's it's repackaging this idea again. Maybe that's not fully true. Maybe this was the first sort of fullest uh, expression of that idea. Again, that doesn't mean it's a it's a bad one. It's just it's one that's been kicking around and hasn't hasn't hasn't. But look, we haven't done it, so in some sense, it's new. It hasn't actually been done before in a serious way, where you prioritize the idea of intern you know internal regime type that that is a defining characteristic of countries. Um, we haven't really done that, have we? No, no, not a, not on a on a level. I just I you know again, uh, I I have plenty of quibbles and the um, yeah, that this would yeah. that this would work or or you know uh, any of it. Look, here's the interesting thing, just to maybe make be a little more concrete on it rather than than theoretical. Um, what's striking about also, and this is not just Macron. You hear this, you travel in Europe all the time. Um, one of the things that is considered a profound um, parting of ways on fundamental values is climate. Um, I, I hear this in Europe all the time. And it's not just Trump. It goes back to the fact that we couldn't pass Kyoto. Uh, it goes to, and, you know, again, kind of like, like uh, 
guns in this country. I have I have doubts that we'd ever pass some sort of uh, substantive and binding climate treaty. Overall, I'm also sympathetic to the idea that that you know these climate treaties are you know sort of busy work of, of multilateral institutions and things like that. Consider though that in Europe at this point, um, it is a mark of deep barbarism of America that America is in fact fundamentally a different, almost you know it's it's an alongside Trump and how much Trump offends them. There's there's something deeply offensive to them uh, about the fact that Americans refuse to uh, pass binding. Uh, climate legislation that binds them in an international framework. A smaller, lesser included case, which no European understands, but of course, you know, and they would cite as being that why we're very different, et cetera, and like a fundamental values thing. Um, but of course, it doesn't rise to the level of uh, of international discord because it, it doesn't fit, but it's guns and the death penalty, two other ones where where they feel, you know, Americans are fundamentally different from us. So this is not to say that you couldn't on some high level, you know, democracies, rah, rah, you know, we're all on the same side and uh, against the authoritarians thing that maybe you could patch something like that together. I just think that it's, it's, um, uh, it's interesting that even in his stuff, because you're right that Macron's saying, yeah, America's absent, but it's not just that. He says it's absent and uh, you know, the writing's on the wall for a long time, which is, again, something I've argued as well. You know, it's, it's since 2008, there's been a, a divergence on, on a lot of this stuff. I think the hollowing out of the, the sense of purpose of post-1989 yeah. and all of that, that's, that's, that's really broken in 2008. But, but for Europeans, it's more than that. It's, it's, it's that for all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of structural reasons, this, this happy talk of the, you know, a unity of values ain't enough. Again, I don't, it's not, it's not for Germans. The Germans can't admit this because their entire conception is based on transcending what they did in World War II. Um, and therefore, you know, of sort of, uh, human transcendence and human improvement. And really, again, they buy into this more than you do, this, 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 yeah. this gospel. But, but, uh, um, I, I, I think that, that, um, uh, these are things that, that, do need to be taken into account that, you know, it's, it's like what binds us across, I think is, is fraying and it ain't just Trump. You know, I think that's what Macron's latching onto. I think it's broadly felt. Um, and it's, it's an issue, you know? Yeah. So it's, the more time I spend in Europe and, you know, for our listeners, um, I spent a good chunk of the past month in, in Europe, as it were, uh, in Germany and a little bit in France. And, I come out of it finding that my American sensibilities are offended. Yeah. Like yeah. they like it's 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 amazing to me like how certain ways of looking at the world are just so deep within me. Yeah. So even though like I identify as being on the left, mm-hmm. I find the the focus on the state and the centrality of the state in Germany and France to be very uncomfortable. Yeah. In part because I think it makes integration difficult. Mm. Um, you know, once you put the state at the center of these things, but anyway, that's that's a whole debate. For oh man, another that's time. that's a really that's interesting a whole, thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, that, that's really good though. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, so oh, no, tell me more about that. That's I, I hadn't thought of that. Like that 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 uh, the sort of state statefulness makes it makes it impossible to integrate. I mean, th- that must have been observed before, but I've never actually heard it. That's really good. So there there isn't actually a lot on that. Um, people kind of touch on it here and there, but it is. It is something that I think we have to develop a little bit more, and I want to kind of see see what I can write on some of this. But um, it's this 
it it it's actually I feel like it's going to be like a whole it's a whole tangent but I'll just say very briefly very briefly and then we're we're wrapping up we're coming up on an hour <laughs> no, here No I don't want this to end Well oh then let's God, then, then, then don't say very briefly then then run <laughs> oh with the God, tangent wow. Oh my God it's like 7:45 already Yeah that's right we've oh been going God, for 50 wow. minutes This so, is crazy to me cuz I honestly this feels to me like we've been talking for 10 minutes our listeners might disagree. Yeah. They're going to be like, oh my God, when However, is this going to end? If they're still there, <laughs> if they're still listening. Anyway, I mean, uh, give us a taste on this. It's, I'm, I'm certainly, it sounds, that's fascinating. So, so it's, it's, uh, it's the, the, the sort of statist approach that, I mean, again, Germany's different from France. France is very statist on these sorts of things, but I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because the French in so many ways also, at least superficially, are closest to Americans and they're, in their um, uh, attachment, explicit attachment to Enlightenment values, and and you know they define themselves in terms of values more so than any other European country close to America. You know, um, yeah, yeah. So, but yet so, it's very different. So there's a couple of things. I mean, one is that dependency on the state is, in my view, not good for Muslim minorities, mm-hmm. and the fact that. Um, Muslim immigrants in the U.S. context, that there wasn't that same context of the state being central, I think actually worked pretty well for like my my parents and for others who were trying to, like my parents never talk about the American state. Mm. I've honestly even never heard that phrase used. I never even really use the phrase of like, we don't even think about our government in terms of a state that is really present in our lives. Yeah. But we what we do think about more is a market and a kind of free marketplace to kind of use some of these, you know, perhaps somewhat banal and cliched terms. So so my, you know, my parents have a relationship to American society, to local communities, uh to to the economy writ large, that to them is their interface with America, as it were. They don't actually know much about the American state. Mm. They don't know much about the American bureaucracy. And this is not just to make kind of a leap claim. I mean, there were times when my parents, like early on after they immigrated, weren't particularly well off. But for them, again, like it wasn't this idea that the state was their salvation or the state would be, would help them integrate, so on and so forth. But what I found that, um, you know, in Germany, um, for example, you know, um, there's a question of who, who funds the mosques and who provides the imams. Mm. Now, from an American perspective, you would just say that some of this would be self-funded, that because we have a philanthropic culture, local communities to some extent, not everywhere, but at least in some parts of the U.S., pitch in Mm. to fund their own local Muslim communities and their own local mosques. That's anathema in Germany because there isn't any, that's not something you do. And there's still a tax write-off for like Catholic institutions and and Catholic churches to some, I, I don't fully understand how it works, but there still is this sense that you can, you can put some money to uh, Christian institutions by way of the state, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. 
And similarly, when you're thinking about the problem of integration, you're thinking about what the state can do to help solve it. So there's a problem, then you automatically think, well, if only the German state would be better, if only they could change their policies and encourage integration. But why is it that the state is the locus of integration? Or why is the responsibility on them as opposed to intermediary institutions, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. But the problem is that a lot of imams in Turkish and Turkish communities in um, in Germany are coming from Turkey, and sermons are still done largely in Turkish. And even the Ministry of Religious Affairs in Turkey, the DNet, is providing some of those imams and providing some of their training, and that, from an American perspective. It's sort of like, how is it, why is Turkey so involved in concerns which, from my perspective, should be the concerns of Germans? But of course, the idea of, what does that even mean? So from an American perspective, that makes sense. But from a German perspective, what does it even mean for something to be German as opposed to Turkish? Mm. That's a whole debate on its own, right? Um But because there isn't um, a local philanthropic community, someone has to fill the gap. And there's really only two options, the Turkish state or the German state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And um, that's kind of where part of the debate is. And I think it's just, um, it's weird to me also that you still have a significant number of German citizens of Turkish origin who are voting in Turkish elections. Yeah. And voting in disproportionate numbers for Erdogan. Yeah, that's cr- okay. That honestly, like, I I don't want to, I don't want to like blame the victim or punch down, as it were, because it's a challenging situation to be in. It's you know, um, the Turkish community initially they were brought in as as guest workers, yeah, yeah. and the German the German state or German society didn't do much to help bring them into society because the presumption was that they were going to go back to Turkey at some point, right? Right. So that's been a problem from day one. But like this, so I want to be, like I don't want to be disrespectful to the very challenging circumstances and the the racism and the economic discrimination or what, like there's a whole list of things that we can talk about. Um, That said, it is a problem if German Turks are still voting in large numbers in Turkish elections. I don't think that's I don't think that's appropriate personally. Mm. And I wouldn't want to see my American Muslim countrymen, brethren voting and taking I would never vote in another country's election. I am loyal to only one country. I think there's something to be said for that. If you want to kind of like vote just because you can because you still sort of care about like where you immigrated from and all that, fine. But to make it that like you, you're you voting in a Turkish election because you are Turkish in a way that you're not necessarily German, like it gets, in, it just, there is a problem here. Yeah. You know, I, did you read the, I haven't. So have you read the New York Times article about, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm German, but I'll never fit in. I think it was just the day before the day, but something. Oh, no, that. I didn't see that. Oh. Put it in the show notes, nothing to discuss there, but it's just, uh, I saw the headline. Um, The other only interesting thing, and maybe this is a a good coda, I need to go uh, look it up now because everything you said there is fascinating. But I seem to remember, 
I don't think it was in the Economist's interview. I think it was in the speech he gave to his foreign service officers. Uh, he talks about Macron does about um, how it's terrible that uh, the core organizing principle of the European Union has been the metaphor, the organizing metaphor has been one of the market as opposed to, I don't know what, the state. So it's interesting that you're saying that it's, 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 it's that, in fact, that market logic to a certain extent is what ties, the America, uh, what ties America together in juxtaposition to Europe in the sense that, that, that you know, perhaps the folly of Macron's project of, of uh, trying to build a, a, a more coherent and functioning Europe is actually to just to replicate its pathologies on a European scale. And therefore, you know, perhaps it's even more destined to fail that the kind of, the kind of um, uh, um, pluralism that something like the European Union could only ever hope to manage is only manageable through some kind of market metaphor and not through some sort of statist metaphor, which is what comes naturally, certainly to the French, but perhaps to all Europeans. And yeah, so I'm in this weird, this weird position where I'm a critic of marketization and the centrality of the market from a kind of American perspective, um, even though I'm somewhat heterodox in confusing ways, which we don't have to go into. That said, when I think about what allows for a pluralistic society, I think about a more market-oriented society that once, even if I want the state to be more involved when it comes to our social safety net in the U.S., but it's also a kind of be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Mm. Beware beware of state involvement, in part because you don't know who's going to win elections. And I don't want to rely on a state that is controlled by some like bad party that starts putting its ideas in. And, and you know, so... Uh, you know, uh, um, I don't know. I mean, we can, this is probably a conversation, a much longer conversation that, that we can have. Um, but yeah, no, no, the state is a, the state is a problem from my perspective. Maybe there's a solution to the problem, but that doesn't make, that doesn't mean it's not a problem, you know? And, um, and I worry that someone like Macron, he he he's um, he sees the state as the answer, right? And I worry about that with his megalomania. That here's someone who, and this is ultimately, I think, where a lot of European politicians they see problems to be solved, sure, and they they see the state as the only natural vehicle to do the solving. Arguably, a lot of Democrats in this country are heading that direction as well. Uh, yeah, and I... Um, I mean, there's a there's that criticism is that there's been a Europeanization of American politics in that regard, at least on the left. Right. Yeah. Right. Problematic. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. maybe, but maybe, maybe the hypothesis that I would kind of like put out there, and maybe I'm, I'm now being sort of encouraged to think about how I can write about this more, is... Um, there, there is an inverse relationship to a strong state and strong pluralism. And I'm trying to think of any case that is an exception to that, to that premise. And I'm not sure if I can think of one. Can you have, can you have a deep, rich pluralism 
with a strong with a strong overbearing state. Well, there's a trade-off there. You can't you can't have a properly liberal pluralistic state. You can have empires. Uh, you can have empires that function. You can have empires that function over uh, a very diverse population. Um, whether it's overweening, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a point where you know the 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 burdens of sort of control become so much and it snaps. Uh, but there's all sorts of ways to sort of think about that. But none of them are democratic. That's for sure. Yeah, you yeah. know. And also, like I, I, at some fundamental level, I don't want the state messing with my shit. Yeah. You know, and that's where I feel like the Americanist comes out of me that I, I recoil. Like when I see strong states, I want them away from me. Mm. I'm like, don't fuck with me. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know if I told you this to be, I, I think I actually texted you about this the other week. Um, my mom, <laughs> I love Doesn't how my like mom you. is like this, this like regular, like she gets a regular mention on the podcast. Right. She texts me when I was in France the other week and she's like, um, Shaddy, I listened to another episode of Wisdom of Crowds and you sweared a lot that time. Yeah, it's true. And she's like, Shaddy, can you please be careful? I don't, you know, she doesn't feel comfortable with this. Right, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blushing over here <laughs> behind the microphone. <laughs> but I, 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 I love... I love that my mom has become a devoted listener. I love that. I love that that your mom floats above the podcast as like a censor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my my mom is the podcast censor. Yeah, well, I, we should have your mom on at some point. I think that'd be really fun. Actually, you know what? You 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 joke. I don't. Okay, fine. Yeah, and people should also know that there is literally a couch that is empty because we're in Demir's living room, and we were we were wondering or or. Um, uh, dreaming of a possibility where that couch could be full of people, a kind of like live audience or people who can kind of heckle us while we talk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that and or guests. I think we, we have, oh, yeah, to, we have yeah. to we have to develop. We have to have a guest. I and think. really, I mean, you know, it's it's. I think the the role of of heckling crowd and guest can I think be merged very productive, uh, very very uh, yeah productively. I think that, that could be something because it good. could be fun to just like have people who kind of like snicker. When they really disagree, they're like, "Oh, wait, seriously? Oh, like, there Shaddy goes yeah. again with his messianic democratic bullshit." Oh, that's me. That's my role in this podcast. <laughs> All right, Shaddy, this was okay. fun. Uh, cool. Talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Bye, Demir.